recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degenier on TalkShoe. Today is Friday, July 13th, 2012. I'm now just outside of Jacksonville, Florida, at the home of my brother and his family, whom, due to the circumstances of our lives, I have not seen since the summer of 1995. Even though we have always been close and we have usually been in contact in writing or on the phone, my brother is um, not Christian identity, he is well caught up in the things of the world, and um, hopefully I'll be able to say enough this week to make him rethink some of the things of the world, and that's always my endeavor wherever I am, whether I'm in my brother's house or in some stranger's home. The, um, well, we all know how hard it is to come out of the world, right? It's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. Certainly not. Some of us have to get hit in the head, like me, to wake the hell up. And, and others of us are more fortunate and wake up and realize what's going on or or are led to find out what's going on one way or another without suffering some personal tragedy. Last week, I spent, I spent last week at the home of Don Spears, who, who is a good and dear brother. I, I got to meet his daughter, Cammy, who, who is an absolute gem of a woman. And um, it, it was a wonderful time. Don and I had about 20 programs. We still haven't come to many agreements. That's just the way it is. Uh, I mean, we agree on the core things, race. Christ, but but there's a lot that we disagree on, and, and there are some serious reasons for that disagreement. Last week here, I had a conversation with Don Spears on Saturday. I wish we could have broadcast all, the, all of the discussions we had. Don is a dear friend and a good brother, and I really and honestly did not want to try to beat him up in a debate because it really wasn't planned, especially since I would have had to out-yell him in his own house just to get a word in, something which I certainly did not desire to do. So basically, I decided to leave it to him to convince me that, as he believes, Satan is in heaven. And in the end, I am not convinced. Don's highly charged. Emotional arguments are not enough to persuade me, especially when all of his scriptural references offer only inferences, and not one clear or disputable witness to prove his point. Don insists that Satan is in heaven, and he says that if I do not understand that, then, as he insists, I do not understand the spiritual things of God. Yet, in the passage he referred to, Paul was indeed talking about the things of God, and not about the things of Satan, which are in opposition to God. Don really and truly believes in the divine inspiration of what he calls the English Bible, ostensibly the King James Version, and he only looks at and observes the Greek when it is convenient for him to do so. That attitude allows Don to define which of the English understandings he likes and which ones he does not like, in spite of the meanings of the 
Greek words or the Greek grammar in the readings, which he likes or dislikes. His defense of this is accompanied by cries for conformity. And, and I'll give examples. Don understands that Gentiles is wrong, that it should be nations. But in other places where the King James made mistakes, or in other places where an understanding of the Greek lends clarity to a, a doctrine or a scriptural position, Don really doesn't care if the English version agrees with what Don believes. His defense of his attitude is accompanied by cries for conformity. But conformity means nothing if it is a forced conformity which in any place in Scripture leaves ideas that are contrary to the language at the time when the words were written. For instance, in our program last week, Don made a point of discussing an obscure topic, the Greek word oiketerion, as it appears in both the epistle of Jude and in one of the letters of Paul. Both writers use this Greek word to describe a habitation. Therefore, Don insists that they must be talking about habitations of an identical nature. Yet, Don would not let me define the Greek word for air as it applies in the understanding of first century literature, because it is convenient to his Satan in heaven theory not to define the word, since the adversary was called the prince of the power of the air by Paul, and Don wants to equate the air with the heaven or with some part of heaven, even though the words are clearly different in Greek. In the Greek cosmology, there are three layers of atmosphere. The air, the ether or ether, and the Uranus. The air is, and yes, air and ether are both Greek words, just as we know them in English. The air is the immediate atmosphere, and the Uranus is the heaven. The word ether describes the bright upper air, and those two words are sometimes interchangeable, but the air is not the heaven. If Satan is the prince of the power of the air, rather than of the Uranus or the heaven, then Satan is not at all in heaven. In Don's world, two habitations must be identical simply because they are described by the same Greek word. And yet, the air and the heaven, or some part of heaven, must be identical, and it is useless to see that they are described by different words. But in reality, they do indeed mean two different things. Now, while all of this is merely semantics, it is Don who raised these points. But his view on the issue contains some strange logic, which does not prove his case upon close inspection. The entire argument that there is still a Satan in heaven, contrary to the words of Christ in the Revelation, rests on three premises. Don presented these three premises. And yes, they are premises. Let's define that word, premise. A premise is basically a, premise is basically a supposition. A premise is something presumed to be true. A premise is a statement that an argument claims will induce or justify 
a conclusion. A premise is an assumption that something is true. Don's argument rests on three premises. The first premise is that the phrase, the host of the high ones, in Isaiah chapter 24, refers to satanic spirits in heaven. That's Don's claim. If we have to misapply the so-called law, as Don calls it, of first mention to phrases rather than to doctrines, then the first time the phrase high ones is used in Scripture is in Isaiah chapter 10, where apparently it applies to people and not to angels in heaven. Here in Isaiah chapter 24, the word would only apply to angels in heaven at anyone's insistence. And there is nothing which compels me to follow such an insistence when interpreting the phrase. I would instead interpret it to refer to the wealthiest merchants, bankers, and kingmakers, which are those people who really rule over society. That too is an interpretation, but you're not going to cram the interpretation that this applies to satanic angels in heaven down my throat without any solid, solid second scriptural witness. The second premise is that the reference to the gods, the reference to gods in the 82nd Psalm refers to angels in heaven. Don Spears insists that this is true, even though Christ himself tells us explicitly in John chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, that this label applies to those men to whom the word of God came. When I pointed this out to Don, and I'll be quoting this passage momentarily, when I pointed this out to Don, he called it the Judeo-Christian interpretation which is an ad hominem statement attempting to, to discredit the plain word of Scripture. In truth, even Judeo-Christianity is not wrong about everything. And I will accept the plain word of Scripture over the insistence of men. If Don had really wanted to discuss these Psalms, rather than try to run over me with them, which is exactly what he did, he tried to run over me citing these psalms without actually quoting them and discussing them. If he really wanted to discuss these psalms, he would have slowed down and listened to my explanations the other night. He refused to. He didn't want to hear any of my explanations. For instance, in Psalm 82.7, I'm going to read this psalm. I wasn't going to read this psalm, but I'm going to read this psalm. I'm going to find Psalm 82. It's rather short, and we're going to see this psalm. This psalm is only eight lines. It's a psalm of Asaph. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Now that word mighty is the Hebrew word El. He judges among the, among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Okay, there we have it right there. The people that are gods, in Psalm 82, verse 1, they are not the wicked, because they are being chastised for accepting the persons of the wicked. They can't possibly be Satan. They can't possibly be devils. That's absolutely crazy. 
the devils are being chastised for accepting the persons of the wicked? No. These are gods, the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. There we go. Does Satan, is Satan divided against himself? Does Satan deliver the poor and the needy from the hands of Satan? Is that what Yahweh our God is saying here in Psalm 82? Or is he talking to men as Jesus Christ? As Jesus Christ in, in John 10, 34 and 35 says, and this is what he says, is it not written in your law that I have said, ye are gods? If he spoke of them as gods to whom the word of Yahweh had come, and the writing is not able to be broken, he whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you tell that you blaspheme. Because he, I said, I am a son of Yahweh. In other words, Christ was using the 82nd Psalm to defend himself from the Pharisees' claims that he was making himself equal with God by calling himself a son of God, Christ is challenging the Pharisees and telling them that this label and that this psalm applies to men, not to Satan's, not to devils in heaven. That is ripping this scripture right out of context because it fits with your artificial paradigm that there's still a Satan in heaven. You have no proof anywhere in Scripture that there's a Satan in heaven, so you have to rip this out of context and make it fit. That's incredible. Let's start with Psalm 82, verse 5. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. Who walks on in darkness? I'll tell you who walks on in darkness. The children of Israel. At this time, the Psalm of Asaph was actually written after the Assyrian deportations of the children of Israel. It's talking about the disobedient children of Israel who were being sent, who are walking the valleys of death, who were said in the prophets they, they were to walk in darkness. This fits hand in hand with those prophecies. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Who does the Bible say explicitly are the children of God? How about Deuteronomy 14.1, where Yahweh's talking to the children of Israel, and he explicitly tells them, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. You want to play by the law of first mention? You go to where it says that the first time where it talks about the children of God, and, and yeah, I know the phrase sons of God exists in Genesis chapter 6, but all throughout the scripture from Deuteronomy 14, from the works of Isaiah, and we'll see that a little later here, from Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the children of Israel and the children of Adam and Adam himself are called the children of God explicitly, explicitly label the children of God. You're not going to tell me that that label applies to anybody else or to any other race, whether it be angels or men, because that's a violation of God's law of kind after kind. Only Adam was created in the image of God. Only the children of Adam through Seth bear that image. The next line, 
Psalm 82.7. The King James Version says, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Now, that, the translation of that and fall like one of the princes is debatable, and I'm not even going to get into that here. However, that phrase, but ye shall die like men, that word for men is not plural. That word for men is singular. That word for men is Adam. But ye shall die like Adam. It's a singular word. In all the Hebrew manuscripts, the word is singular. It should be read Adam. Ye shall die like Adam. As Paul says, it is appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. In Romans 8.17, Paul says, in the transgression of one, death is taken reign through that one. He spoke of that same Adam. Although we are gods, because if we're the children of Yahweh, and Yahweh's law of kind after kind stands, and we are in the image and likeness of Yahweh our God, then we must be like him. And as Christ promises in the fulfillment of all things, once we are totally reconciled to Yahweh our God, once we are restored to the kingdom of God, all of us will be like our teacher. That's why the scripture cannot be broken. It's not talking about Satan in heaven. It's talking about the children of God on earth, that we're to do the works of Yahweh our Father, defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and the needy. That's what this is saying. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all the nations. All the nations, it applies to the nations of the children of Israel and to those promises. This does not apply to Satan in heaven. Don's further arguments concerning the phrase sons of the mighty or sons of God in the 89th Psalm are directly related to this one. And the plain word of Scripture is that Adam is the son of God, Luke 3.38. That the children of Adam, and of course the children of Israel, are indeed the children of God, Deuteronomy 14.1, Acts 17.28, all explicit references to who the children of God are to who the sons of God are. Therefore, the phrase sons of God in the Psalms applies to the children of Israel. And the context of Psalm 82, as we just read it, proves that beyond doubt. It does not at all apply to angels in heaven, whether they be good or bad. As Yahshua himself has told us in John chapter 10, where he said, defending himself from the false accusations of the Pharisees, that he was making himself equal to God, he says, is it not written in your law that I have said ye are gods? If he spoke of them as gods, to whom the word of Yahweh had come, which is to nobody but the children of Israel, and the writing is not able to be broken, he whom the Father has sanctified and sent, 
into the world, you tell that you blaspheme because I said that I am a son of Yahweh. Likewise, the assembly of the sons of God in Job chapter 1 was not in heaven. It was on earth where both Satan and Job were, as the book also explicitly tells us. Now, there are in Scripture little discussed and little understood correlations between the children of Adam and the angels in heaven, in that there were ostensibly children of God existing in heaven before the foundation of the world, as Job 38, 7, chapter 38, verse 7, seems to reveal. However, this alone does not refute the perspective supplied here, nor does it prove anything concerning the 82nd or 89th Psalms or Job chapter 1. And none of it has anything at all to do with angels cast out of heaven following their rebellion against God. Christ says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, that the children of the resurrection shall be as the angels. The word host in Greek means like. They shall be like the angels. It does not say that they shall be angels. Paul later says that the saints shall judge angels. Paul doesn't say that they will be angels. So there must remain differences between men and angels. If there were not, then that event described in Genesis chapter 6 may hardly have been seen as a violation of the law of kind after kind and cannot have been compared by Christ to the race mixing of modern times. In light of the plain word of Scripture, which tells us explicitly who the sons are, who the children of God are, which has many scriptural witnesses, Deuteronomy 14.1, Luke 3.38, Acts 17.28, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6, where Yahweh talks about my sons and daughters in reference to the children of Israel, we can then examine the third premise. And it is a premise that the Masoretic text is correct in its reading of Genesis 6, chapters, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which calls those angels who mingled with the daughters of Adam, who is the son of God, and it calls those angels the sons of God. Rather, as we have pointed out in the past year and in our papers at Christogenia, it is likely that the correct reading of Genesis chapter 6, as it is in some Septuagint manuscripts, and as it is in the Enoch literature, which Don Spears himself likes to quote, the correct reading may indeed be sons of heaven and not sons of God. And once that is realized, then any apparent conflict which that verse has with all of those plain statements concerning the identity of the sons of God simply disappears from Scripture. Now, I have no doubt that Don Spears is a good man and that he means well and that he has pure intentions. However, on Saturday, he did make some ad hominem assaults on both my spirituality and upon my methods of scriptural interpretation, which I must now address. 
I'm certain that he did this with no ill intention towards me. I don't think Don has an ill intention in his body. And I do consider him a good and beloved brother. However, he did it, and I have to address it. Don apparently believes that I freewheel my interpretations of Scripture, in spite of the fact that I have indeed outlined my methods of interpretation in papers in my writings. For example, there was a paper I wrote for, for the Christogenia Forum some time ago, which is entitled On Biblical Exegesis. It's also on Christogenia in the discussion section on the menu off the top of the page. I also presented that paper in a program here a year ago this month. As I also said several weeks ago here in my Luke chapter 4 presentation, Christ, by his own words, came to reveal things kept secret since the foundation of the world. Understanding starts in the New Testament. A few weeks ago in Luke chapter 4, I presented a passage from Deuteronomy that even proves that, that there were secrets. There were things not written in the book of Genesis. There were secrets which were kept from the foundation of the world. However, the things that we have, the things that have been revealed to us, were revealed to us so that we could keep his law. That's what the passage I cited from Deuteronomy states. Christ came to reveal things kept secret since the foundation of the world. In addition to this, we see that the scribes have turned the word of God, the law of God, into a lie, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, referring to at least some places in the books of the law. Therefore, the words of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament, they must be the lens through which we examine the Old Testament. They were a lot closer to the original text than we were, and they had the revelation of Christ, which we have in writing, but they must have had it to a much greater degree. So the New Testament must be the lens through which we examine the Old. And while passages in the New Testament cannot be taken out of context in order to refute the Old Testament. On the other hand, we cannot use any understanding of Old Testament ideas, inferences, or allusions to refute plain statements in the New Testament. If Christ said that Satan fell from heaven and Satan was that old serpent, then Satan is out of heaven, because the Revelation says that he has no place any longer in heaven. It says no place was found for him in heaven. If I throw Mexicans out of North America, and I write that all the Mexicans are thrown out of North America, you can't even assume that there are any Mexicans left in Mexico if I'm telling the truth. There are no Mexicans in California. There are no Mexicans in Nevada. There are no Mexicans in Florida. There are no Satans in the first heaven. There are no Satans in the second heaven. There are no Satans in the third heaven. Because Satan, no place was found for him in heaven, according to the revelation of Yahshua Christ.
While passages in the New Testament cannot be taken out of context in order to refute the Old Testament, on the other hand, we cannot use any understanding of Old Testament ideas, inferences, or illusions to refute plain statements in the New Testament. This in some places may defy the so-called law of first mention. But that law is a law of man and not a law of God. It may work in a world which has a perfect Bible. It may. But our Bible itself mentions its own imperfection and its own incomplete state. I do not build doctrines on inference and on premise. Rather, I strive to build my doctrines on plain and explicit statements which have two or three witnesses, and from, the, from those, from those, from using those plain and explicit statements as a foundation, from there I aim to interpret the parables and the prophecies which align with those statements, and not the other way around. So, for example, if there are two or three explicit statements which tell me that the children of Adam are the children of God, then no other reference to the sons of God in any context will ever convince me that it is talking about angels rather than about the children of Adam. There are actually at least three explicit statements to that effect in each testament which proves that the children of Adam or the children of Israel, who which is a small portion of the children of Adam, are indeed the sons and daughters of God. There is not one explicit statement in any scripture which states that angels and fallen angels are the sons of God. As Don Spears would like to read Psalms 82 and 89, which he claims reference a Satan which is still in heaven. And of course, the context of Psalm 82, if you read the entire psalm, proves that it can't possibly be talking about Satan anywhere, not in heaven, not on the earth, not anywhere. Doctrines are not based on inference alone. Doctrines are not based on supposition. They have to be based on explicit statements, and then we interpret the Psalms and the, the, the prophets and the parables. Don talked at length on Saturday about the need to follow these traditional methods of scriptural interpretation, such as the so-called law of first mention, which I would rebuke because the New Testament reveals things that were not revealed in the Old. We better pay attention to those explicit statements in the New Testament before we go building any doctrines from the Old. Don himself also claims that Christian identity truth is discovered with those traditional methods of interpretation from the King James Version alone, without any necessity to learn other languages and to inspect the source documents. If any of the early Christian writers, and if any of the major schools of recent times, I don't care if it's Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, they all claim to play by basically the same rules of interpretation. If any of those groups, if any of those seminaries, if any of those schools of Christian thought, both either ancient or modern, had ever 
arrived at the truth using those traditional methods of interpretation, those methods which were devised by scholars, if any of them had arrived at the truth, then perhaps I would see merit in them. But they have never arrived at the truth of the word of God through those methods. And they reject that truth today even when it is shown to them. Rather, those methods bind men to laws which have been devised by man and not by God. And I see them as the systemization of deception. I shall not be bound by the laws of man respecting the word of God. Don has learned the Israel identity truth, yet he clings to those old ways which have never discovered that truth. He insists on pouring new wine into old bottles. He's trying to take a new patch and put it on an old cloth. And that cloth is a cloth full of holes. Criticizing his estimation of my spirituality, Don claims that I do not want to believe anything which I cannot perceive with my fleshly senses. That is likewise his own fleshly perception of my spirituality. I believe in all things spiritual which are described by the word of God. And I also believe that the spirit operates in us, just as Paul tells us, and as the word of God says. And that how we perceive the physical world and what we do in that physical world is driven by the Spirit in us when indeed we manage to put away the deeds and the desires of the flesh, which none of us are 100% successful in doing. And I know that more than, <laughs> more than anyone. Although I may fail, I strive to reflect the things of my spirit, into the physical world. But I do not imagine the spiritual world to be like the physical. There is a difference. The prayer which we are taught to pray is that things be on earth as they already are in heaven. And that is my prayer indeed. Therefore, I cannot believe that there is a Satan in heaven. If there is a Satan in heaven, then God is a failure. Because his word states that neither was their place found anymore in heaven. No place for them in the first heaven, no place for them in the second heaven, no place for them in any heaven. And he asks us to pray that things be on earth as they are in heaven. Why? Because Satan has been cast out to earth. And he knows he has but a short time. If I cannot apply the things of my spirit in order to understand and evaluate the world around me, what I see and what I feel and what I hear and what I touch, then the word of God is of no use to me in this world. This leads me to the next item which requires discussion. It amazes me. And I have seen this same thing happen many times. How two men can read the same scripture and understand very plain words in an entirely different manner. On Saturday, Don cited Titus chapter 3, verse 5. 
insisting that our Adamic spirit is not with us from birth, in refutation of what I understand and expressed when reading the plain words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 44, and in conjunction with Genesis 2, 7, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and other passages, which I can point out to substantiate my case. We are sown a physical seed, and we are raised a spiritual seed. If there is a physical Adamic body, there is a spiritual Adamic body, a spiritual body that can exist apart from the physical. Don stated, and I will only paraphrase, that it is the Holy Spirit in us which receives the washing of regeneration and renewal that Paul describes in his letter to Titus. Let me find Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's Titus chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 in the King James Version. When I read Titus 3, 5, I understand that it is the Holy Spirit which is performing the washing and regeneration. The washing of regeneration and renewal. If the Holy Spirit is holy, it has no need of washing. Don read that passage and insisted it's the Holy Spirit which is being washed, which is receiving the washing of regeneration and renewal that Paul describes. I read it. I understand that it's the Holy Spirit which is performing that washing of regeneration and renewal. That's why it's called the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This similar language in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, where from the King James Version it says, talking about the selection of ministers, not a novice, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, should we not condemn the devil? Or is it the devil doing the condemning? The devil, if a minister is lifted up with pride, he might fall into that trap of being condemned by the false accuser, the devil. So it's the devil doing the condemning of this prospective minister that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 3.6. It's the same grammatical construct used here. It's the Holy Spirit doing the washing. If the Spirit is holy, it has no need of washing. It is the Holy Spirit which performs the cleansing of our Adamic spirits. And the Holy Spirit itself does not need to be cleansed. From the wisdom of Solomon, Chapter 2, verse 23. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. As Paul says, speaking of Israel, if there is a physical body which we are sown, then there is a spiritual body which we are raised. And those are Paul's words. 
even the spirits of those who sinned before the flood were never extinguished. As Peter tells us, that Christ during his three days in the earth proclaimed the gospel to those spirits in prison who at one time had been disobedient. We must dispense with the old leaven. We must reconcile all of Scripture. And Don has failed to do that. He has not dispensed with the old leaven. At heart, he is still a Baptist. I love the guy. He's a great guy. He's a wonderful man, but he's still a Baptist. In the presentation of Luke chapter 4 given here several weeks ago, I made the comment that I have never seen any scriptural evidence of a wicked demon spirit interacting with men unless the spirit was embodied. And I offered to be shown such evidence. That offer still stands. Don Spears attempted to meet my offer by citing 1 Kings chapter 22, a story recounted in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. The following account is lengthy, but it must be read in context. I started to read it during our program last week. I realized that I had a bigger challenge doing that and convincing Don that it didn't say what he thought he said than it was worth taking at the time. It wasn't worth the aversion at the time of the program. I'm going to read 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 13 through 25. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. And Micaiah said, As Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that will I speak. So he came to the king and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for Yahweh shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee, that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of Yahweh? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And Yahweh said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee, Jehoshaphat being the king of Judah, did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? And he said, Hear now therefore the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. Now this is the words of the prophet to the king, right? And Yahweh said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before Yahweh, and said, I will persuade him. And Yahweh said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. I will be embodied in the mouth of his prophets, right? And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. 
That's the key word right there. Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all the Eastside prophets. Why? Because the prophets would get the king to do the will of Yahweh, even though the king had to be lied to in order to do it. Now, therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and Yahweh has spoken evil concerning thee. But Zedekiah, the son of Kenanah, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way went the spirit of Yahweh from me to speak unto thee? And Micaiah said, Behold, thou shalt see in that day when thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. It is evident that Yahweh God communicated to the prophets in visions. And while those visions had meaning, they were not to be taken literally. In the passage from 1 Kings chapter 22, which we just read, the personification of the lying spirit is an allegory being used as a rhetorical device. Just as wisdom, if we examine the book of Proverbs, and we see Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, wisdom is personified in the Proverbs. The personification, that doesn't mean that wisdom exists as a person. That doesn't mean at all that wisdom exists as a person. It's an allegory which is used as a rhetorical device. If you don't understand ancient literature, you won't understand allegory, and you won't understand rhetoric. The personification of the lying spirit is no more literal than the sheep that have not a shepherd in the preceding verses. In truth, this is fully evident in verse 23, where the allegory is summarized, and it says, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets. This evil spirit is not one of the fallen angels. It is not Satan. It is not one of the demons. Rather, it is an evil spirit sent upon these particular men from God himself. Another instance of such an occurrence is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where I will read verse 23. And it says, from the King James Version, And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Don Spears failed to notice the difference between an evil spirit, a spirit which is evil in the eyes of men, and which is sent by God to accomplish the will of God, he failed to notice the difference between that and a satanic angel or demon spirit which is in a state of rebellion and which is opposed to God. There is a huge difference indeed. Evil spirits from God are not satanic spirits or angels adversarial to God. There is a huge difference. Don also mentioned that the laying on of hands was not prophesied in the Old Testament. And he is right. But there is a type for it in the Old Testament. For instance, in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, And the elders of the congregation 
shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before Yahweh. And the bullock shall be killed before Yahweh. And that was the sacrifice which was to be offered for sin. Now there is no longer any sacrifice for sin, except that the individual members of the body of Christ should sacrifice themselves for their kinsmen by serving their kinsmen as Christ sacrificed himself for our sakes. Therefore, we no longer lay our hands upon the bullock, which is going to be sacrificed. Rather, we lay our hands upon each other because we should dedicate our lives to one another because we are the body of Christ. At least that is my opinion, but what do I know? I only know what I could see and feel and touch and taste. I'd rather sort of bullet on the barbecue. And with that, I will say that Don, Don Spears, I love you, but you're Satan in heaven theory. It doesn't have a leg to stand on. There is no Satan in heaven. The 82nd Psalm, the 89th Psalm, they're talking about the children of God. They're talking about us. The context of the 82nd Psalm more than proves it is talking about us. It's talking about the children of Israel who were accepting the persons of the wicked. Teach the truth about that Psalm, Don. Teach the truth about that Psalm and you will keep your brethren from the real Satan. And to hell with the Satan in heaven. He's not there. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass thereafter that he was passing through each city and town, proclaiming and announcing the good message of the kingdom of Yahweh. And the twelve were with him. And there were certain women who were healed from evil spirits and illnesses. Maria, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons were expelled. And Johanna, the wife of Cusa, a trustee of Herodas. And Susanna, and many others, who had been ministering to them from their belongings. The Codex Sinaiticus has the women having been healed from unclean spirits rather than from evil spirits. The word Magdalene, actually it's Magdalene, is not a name. Rather, it means to describe a woman from Magdala, which was a town on the western coast of what we call the Sea of Galilee. So wherever it says Mary Magdalene, or however you want to pronounce it, it really means Mary the woman from Magdala. The label was obviously expedient since there were several women named Mary, Mary or Maria or Mariam, it's all the same name, among the intimates of Christ. The Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Alexandrinus have the end of verse 3, ministering to him from their belongings rather than ministering to them from their belongings. The Christian New Testament follows the codices Vaticanus, Bezai, and or, or Beze and Washingtonensis. 
These women, while they were not always mentioned, were probably in the immediate company of Christ very often. In Luke chapter 23, and also in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, we see that these women witnessed the crucifixion, who were said to have followed him from Galilee, even though they are not mentioned explicitly as being in his company in many of the intermediate events which were recorded. We see these women were always with him. During their travels following him, these women were ministering to Christ from their belongings, meaning that they were women who had property and had money, perhaps in their widowhood, and from their wealth, they were seeing to his daily needs. So we see that even Christ himself was sustained by those people whom he blessed with the ability to be in such a position so that they could do so. Christ was ministered by his people, by the body of Christ, no doubt. The word epitrophus here is a trustee. It may be an administrator, a governor, a viceroy, a guardian. Here the King James Version has the word steward. The word also appears in Matthew chapter 20, verse 8, where in the King James Version it is steward. And in Galatians 4, 2, where in the plural it is actually tutors. Now, of course, Herod himself was an Edomite. Many of the rulers of Judea at this time were Edomites. That does not mean, in this mixed-race society of Judea, that all of those people who worked for the establishment were Edomites. And in fact, just as we see in our own Edomite-controlled government of today, many of those who worked for the establishment were indeed good Israelite people who were caught up in the world, so to speak. So we can't find anything to accuse this Kuzawith simply because he was of the employees of the court of Herod. The kingdom of heaven was preached by Christ during his ministry. However, his followers thought that he himself was going to usher in the kingdom of heaven at that time to restore the kingdom of God on earth at that time. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, we see the promise of the coming kingdom of God, which was to follow the beast kingdoms of, kingdoms of history, which were also prophesied, which after describing four great beast empires, Daniel wrote, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand forever. In Daniel chapter 7, we see a prophecy concerning the coming kingdom of heaven, which is also a part of a much broader tapestry of prophecy, which was for the most part yet to be fulfilled in the first century. And here is Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came 
that the saints possessed the kingdom. This Ancient of Days is portrayed in much the same way that Christ had portrayed himself in the Revelation. Christ is indeed the Ancient of Days because he is Yahweh God incarnate. However, in Daniel chapter 9, the prophet is given a vision which dates 69 weeks of years from the rebuilding of the city Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah and says that in a 70th week that Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself, which describes perfectly the ministry of Christ. Understanding that the first advent of Christ was not the time when the kingdom would be restored to Israel, who are indeed the saints of Daniel 7.22, was a point which was even misunderstood among the apostles. At Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we read, that when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Of course, from the revelation of Joshua Christ, we know that we still await that final restoration, and we pray that it comes soon. It was a great disappointment to many people in first century Judea to know the Messiah, and yet, I guess out of their worldly desires, they were not restored to the kingdom at that time. And that was a source of great dispute among the disciples and the Judaizers after the death of Christ and after his resurrection. Which is why in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after his resurrection, the apostles still thought that he would restore the kingdom to them at that time. And he responded that it's not theirs to know the times when such things would happen. Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And a great crowd coming together and upon their traveling to each city with him, he spoke in a parable. The sower has come out to sow his seed, and in his sowing, while that which fell by the road was then trampled, and the birds of heaven devoured it, then others had fallen upon the bedrock, and sprouting it withered because it did not have moisture. And others had fallen in among the thorns, and growing together the thorns strangled them. Yet others had fallen unto the good earth, and sprouting produced fruit a hundredfold. Saying these things, he cried out, He having an ear to hear, must hear. Matthew's version of the conclusion of the parable reads, But that he... I'm sorry, but that having been sown upon the good earth, this is he hearing the word and understanding, who surely bears fruit and makes then some a hundredfold, but some sixty and some thirty. The explanation of this parable is not found in Matthew chapter 13, where Christ is recorded as having set forth the parable of the wheat and the tares and having explained that parable instead. Luke chapter 8, verse 9. Then his students inquired of him, what could this parable be? We see that's recorded here in Luke, and that's not recorded in Matthew. Note that while to his students it was given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, Yahshua nevertheless had to explain to them the meaning of several of the parables. 
And they asked him to do that both here with the parable of the, the sower and in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the wheat and the tares. The parable of the wheat and the tares is not recorded here in Luke, but the explanation of the parable of the sower is not supplied in Matthew's account. So we see that each gospel writer only provides us with a portion of all of these events. We need all four gospels and all the witnesses that they provide in order to get a much fuller picture of exactly what transpired at any of these events. Verse 10, And he said, To you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of Yahweh, but to the rest in parables, that seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not understand. The only difference between the apostles and most of the Israelite people of Judea, and I'm talking about the Israelite people of Judea, is that Yahshua Christ chose the apostles to understand and to come to know the mysteries of the kingdom. God himself determines which of us have open eyes and which of us remain blind. Of course, there were also non-Israelites in Judea, the Edomites and other Canaanites, who were and are always to remain blind. Because I believe this is quite important to point out, I'm going to repeat much of I said of what I said in reference to the parable of the sower and to this exclamation of Christ when Matthew chapter 13 was discussed here last year. Many identity Christians, in order to make a point to the uninitiated or to the newly initiated, at times tend to oversimplify certain aspects of Scripture. I myself have also been guilty of doing so, and I will probably not be able to avoid doing so again in the future. That's just the way it is. That's the difference between milk and meat. Reading this passage, many explain that Christ spoke these words because he did not want the Canaanite and Edomite Judeans to understand him. And that is true, but it is only partially true. Going back to the original passage that Christ is quoting, let us read that first from Isaiah chapter 6. And this is another lengthy quote, but it needs to be said. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah, the king of Judah, died, I saw also Yahweh sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain did he fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips. 
and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the altar saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And Yahweh has removed men far away, till there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Now I have a dispute with the translation of verse 13. But yet in it shall be a tent, and it shall return, and shall be eaten, as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And I would translate verse 13 differently. I would translate it in the following manner. Yet a tenth will return and be kindled, a pillar of oak, in order to be a monument, because of their felling, the holy seed will be a monument. We know from Jeremiah, for instance, from chapters 2 and 24, and from Ezekiel, for instance, Ezekiel chapter 16, that Jerusalem at the time of these prophets was also a mixed-race population, with at least some mixed-race individuals, probably more than some. Much like first-century Judea was also mixed, and for that reason Judah was deemed by Yahweh to consist of both good and bad figs, talking about the remnant of Judah that was extant in the time of Jeremiah. Yet Isaiah, in giving this prophecy concerning blindness, was talking to the people in general and not to any specific group among the people. There are races of people here who do not belong in the kingdom of heaven at all, as we learn from the parables of the net and the tares, which we see in, and, and the wheat and the tares, which we see in Matthew chapter 13, where the parable of the sower also appears. Certainly, Yahshua does not care for them to understand his words. However, we, in our own uncleanness, as Isaiah admitted, in our own uncleanness, we do not ourselves deserve the truth of the word of God. We see Isaiah make that admission in verses 5 through 7 of this passage, which we just wrote, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah told us that even he did not deserve the truth of God, having what he considered to be unclean lips, and dwelling in the midst of the people with unclean lips. And we all do that today. Therefore, it is clear that a lot of us, our own people, a lot of Israelite people, as well as those of our enemies, are to remain blind as to the purposes of our God. The example here is primarily that Yahweh himself chooses out from among his people those who shall see and hear and who shall learn his truths. The rest of the people, whether they be his or not, 
whether they be Israel or not, they shall remain blinded for as long as it is determined by him. As for the children of Israel who do not heed the word of Yahweh, he relinquishes them to the enemy. As Paul says, speaking of the unrepentant sinner in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he instructs us to turn such as them over to Satan to put them out of the Christian assembly, to turn them over to those human adversaries of God, turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. Luke 8, verse 11. This is the parable. The seed is the word of Yahweh, and they by the road are those hearing. Then comes the false accuser, and he takes the word from their hearts, lest believing they would be preserved. The false accuser, the devil, the evil one, as he is called in the corresponding passage in Matthew's version of this parable, is indeed the Jew and all of his fellows and all of their false doctrines and all of their calumnious lies, those who do not grasp the truth of the word, are most susceptible to these things. As Peter tells us, the devil walks about seeking whom he may devour. Verse 13, Christ continuing with the explanation of the parable of the sower, and those upon the bedrock, when they heard, they received the word with joy, but these do not have roots, who for a time believe, and a time in a time of trial they withdraw. Root in the word comes only through study of the word itself. If your knowledge is deep, you will not be easily shaken. If you merely believe the message, but your knowledge is shallow, you are easily entrapped when confronted by the schemes of the adversary, not knowing how to answer and therefore being caught in a seeming contradiction which is no contradiction if only you had studied. The enemy loves best to try to catch us in his own false premises. Verse 14. And those having fallen into the thorns, they are those hearing and going off are strangled by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and are not brought to perfection. Read your Bible on Sunday morning, go to church, and forget every word of what you have heard or read because you're watching football on television for the rest of the day. That's only one example. We either care for the word and pursue the things of God, or we care for the world and pursue worldly things. No man can serve two masters, God and mammon. Verse 15, but that which is in the fair earth, they are those who are fair and good in heart, hearing the word, continuing. They then bear fruit in patient endurance. So we see that those who are fruitful in the word are the minority of the seed. And the seed being sown here must all be good seed because Yahweh's law is thou shalt not sow thy seed thy field with mingled seed. 
So the seed is a single kind and not many kinds. It is all good seed. But some of it lands in bad places. Comparing ourselves to the seed, we have no control over where we should land. And for that reason alone, Yahweh shall have mercy on all of Israel. And therefore, we should not judge good seed to be bad. As Christ himself has told us, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Verse 16. Now no one, lighting a lamp, conceals it in a vessel or sets it under a couch, but sets it upon a lampstand, that those entering in would see the light. For there is nothing secret which shall not become evident, nor hidden which shall not be known and brought to light. Both the 3rd century papyrus, known as P75, and the Codex Vaticanists want the phrase which is rendered that those entering in would see the light. It doesn't really change the meaning of the parable. The phrase is simply missing in some of the older and better manuscripts. The words light and evident in verse 17 are from the same Greek word, phaneros, which means open to sight, visible, manifest, evident, or known. For there is nothing in secret which shall not become evident, nor hidden which shall not be made known and brought to light. Christ is talking about the good seed here also. He has not changed the subject from that which is in the explanation of the parable of the sower. Rather, he is continuing his explanation of that same subject. The people of God who receive the word and who bear fruit are fully manifest in the earth. They have been for centuries. They are those who have taken the word of God and who have produced the fruits of the kingdom of God. While many seed fell upon the rough ground, and while some seed, some of that seed flowered at diverse times, it is primarily the Saxon and related peoples of, peoples of northern Europe who have instituted Christian governance throughout the world, for better or worse. We have been that light set out in the open for all to see. Our works as a race, even though we haven't all been good, even though a lot of us have fallen in the thorns and a lot of us have fallen by the road, we have proven throughout history that we are the people of God. The Jew has been absolutely contrary to God throughout history. This parable proves that the Christian people are the people of God. God himself is telling us that he does not hide his people that they are made known and brought to light, that they do his work in the world, that they bear fruit when they hear the word of God. The white race has always done that. We have created civilization after civilization, all living by the rule of law, all believing in the ideals 
of justice and equity wherever we have gone in every age. Nobody else meets that criteria. We are that shining city on the hill. And we always have been. We are right under our own noses. Luke 8, 18. Therefore you watch how you hear. Indeed, whoever has, it shall be given to him. And whoever has not, even that which he supposes to have, shall be taken from him. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if a man builds upon the foundation of Christ gold, silver, and precious stones, he shall receive a reward. However, if a man builds wood, hay, and stubble upon that foundation, he will receive no reward, and those things which he thinks that he has, he shall lose, because they burn so easily in the fire. However, he himself shall be saved through those trials of fire, as Paul also explains. Verse 19. Then his mother and brethren came near to him, yet were not able to meet with him because of the crowd. So it was announced to him, Your mother and brethren stand outside wishing to see you. And replying, he said to them, My mother and my brethren are those hearing and doing the word of God. Here we see that Christ had literal brethren meaning brothers with the same mother. If that is not so, then these brethren would not have been traveling about with their mother. And if they, were, if they too were merely fellow believers at the time when the words were first spoken, then the entire episode would be meaningless. And the response of Christ in reference to those doing the will of God would be unnecessary. Mary, as this verse fully demonstrates, clearly had more children after she had given birth to Christ. For which reason, Luke chapter 2, verse 7, calls him her firstborn son. If she were her only son, then the Greek word monogenes, which was discussed here last week when we presented Luke chapter 7, would have been appropriate. Yet Luke chapter 2, verse 7, he used the term prototakos, which is absolutely and literally firstborn. Prototakos also appears in certain manuscripts at Matthew one twenty-five as well, where the King James Version, in that version, Christ is also called Mary's firstborn, after the Greek reading of the majority text. Luke 8, verse 22. And it happened in one of those days that he and his students boarded into a vessel, and he said to them, We should pass through to the other side of the lake. And they set out. Then most of them had fallen asleep, and a furious storm of wind descended upon the lake, and being filled with water, then they were endangered. So drawing near, they aroused him, saying, Master, Master, we are being destroyed. 
and awakening, he censured the wind and the waves of water, and they stopped, and it became calm. Then he said to them, where is your faith? Being fearful, they wondered, saying to each other, so who is this that he even commands the winds and the water, and they obey him? This is one place in the Christogenian New Testament where I put words in italics, because the verb simplero, which is to fill up or to fill completely, infers, water being the subject, that the boat would be filled with water. Therefore, I added it to the text. From the Septuagint, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is like to thee? Thou art mighty, O Lord, and thy truth is round about thee. Thou rulest the power of the sea, and calmest the tumult of its waves. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they came ashore in the region of the Gadarenes, which is opposite the coast of Galilee. The account of this voyage and of the events concerning the possessed man and the swine, which we are about to read, is also given at Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 34, and at Mark chapter 4, verse 35, through Mark 5, verse 20. The order of events here in Luke agrees with the Gospel of Mark. However, in the Gospel of Matthew, the encounter with the Gadarenes is recorded as having occurred before many of the events that Luke and Mark place it as having followed, such as the chastisement of the disciples of Christ by the Pharisees for plucking grain on the Sabbath and the healing of the man with the withered hand, among other things. And to see that, we must compare Luke chapter 6 with Matthew chapter 12. So Matthew places this encounter at a much later time in the Gospel, where Luke and Mark have it earlier. The name of the district in which this event took place is also a matter of much dispute and speculation, even in the earliest times. And among the manuscripts, five different names for this district appear. Gadarene, Gazarene, Gerasene, Gergesene, and Gergestane. Five different names appear. And the best candidate for this is Gadara, or, or the region of the Gadarenes. The others are Geresa, Gergesa, Gazara, and Gergusta. We have the region of the Gadarenes, the regions of the Gerasenes, the regions of the Gergesenes, the region of the Gazarenes, and the regions of the Gergustarenes, which is very confusing. The manuscripts don't agree among themselves. In Luke, we see Gadara, in the Alexandrian manuscript in the Washingtonensis, here in 826 and 837. 
and in the, in the majority text. In the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Beze, we see Geressa. In the Codex Sinaiticus, we see Gergesa. In Matthew, we see Gadara in the Codex Vaticanus, where the Codex Vaticanus had Geressa in Luke. The Codex Vaticanus has Geressa in Mark. So, so the, the manuscripts don't agree with themselves. The Codex Sinaiticus has Gergesa in Luke, Gazara in Matthew, and Geressa in Mark. It has three different names for the same place in the same account in three different Gospels. So it's, it, it's um, highly disputable which of the three names or, or which of these five names are proper in the three different accounts. Based upon manuscript support, based upon the antiquity and perceived reliability of manuscripts, I would be obliged to follow the NA-27 in each instance in these Gospels, and to write Geressa in Luke, Gadara in Matthew, and Geressa in Mark. The Gerasenes in Luke and Mark, the region of the Gerasenes, and in Matthew chapter 8, the region of the Gadarenes, or Gadara. However, I've chosen to follow the opinions of Joseph Thayer in this manner, and he lays out a a, a pretty fair account of the historian's records concerning this region in his Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. There are several names in the Old Testament which are similar to Gadara, and Gadara is the name that I have chosen in the Christogenian New Testament for this region in all three accounts so that they would be consistent. Yet none of those places with names similar to Gadara in the Old Testament, such as Geder, G-E-D-E-R, and Gedera, G-E-D-E-R-A-H, which we, you can find in Strong's Concordance, none of them can be connected to this place since they all seem to be far to the south in the land of Judah, and here we're in the land of Galilee. So for historical region, reasons, reasons spelled out by Joseph Thayer, <coughs> I have this place being the region of the Gadarenes. The manuscript evidence is extremely inconclusive. However, it's also difficult to place Gadara in a location which, which makes this story easy to understand, because even there, Gadara was the capital of Parahia, according to Josephus, and that's in um, Book 4 of Wars of the Judeans. Situated opposite the southern extremity of the Lake of Gennesaret to the southeast, so it's opposite the southern extremity of the Sea of Galilee to the southeast. And it's some distance from the lake on the banks of the river Hieromax, according to Pliny's Natural History, Book 5. Sixty stadia from the city Tiberius, according to Joseph in his life, Josephus in his life, line 65. Yet that's still 
places, Gadara is the most likely candidate for this event. And that's why it appears in the Christogenian New Testament. Luke 8, verse 27. And with his coming out upon the land, he met a certain man from the city having demons, and for a considerable time had not worn a garment, and has abode not in a house, but among the tombs. Coming out upon the land from the ship, he, meaning Christ, met a certain man. And that word for met is a verb which actually means to purposefully go to meet, signifying perhaps that Christ's purpose in making this trip was certainly planned to meet this certain man. The word is hoop and hoop and tao. Strong's number 5221. Verse 28. And seeing Yahshua crying out, he fell down before him in a loud voice, and he said, What is there with me and with you, Yahshua, son of Yahweh the highest? I beg you, do not torment me. Therefore he commanded the unclean spirit to come out from the man. For many times he had seized him, and being guarded, he was bound in chains and shackles. Yet breaking through the bonds, he had been driven by the demon into the wilderness. Then Yahshua questioned him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered into him. And they exhorted him that he would not command them to depart into the abyss. And there was a considerable herd of swine there, feeding on the mountain. And they exhorted him that he would not allow them to enter into them. Then the demons, departing from the man, entered into the swine. And the herd rushed headlong down the bank into the lake and drowned. So far as I have found, it is only seen in the writings the the Enoch literature, such as one Enoch, from both the Ethiopic and from those parts of the work found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, that wicked demon spirits come from the spirits of bastards. I'm going to read for the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition, William B. Erdman's Publishing Company, from Volume 2, pages 1027 and 1028 translated by Martinez and Pigcolar. From the scroll designated 4Q510, this is a fragment of what is called Songs of the Sage, a part of fragment one. Declare the splendor of his radiance in order to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the ravaging angels and the bastard spirits, demons, Lilith, owls and jackals, and those who strike unexpectedly to lead astray the spirit of knowledge to make their hearts forlorn. And you have been placed in the era of the rule of wickedness and in the periods of humiliation of the sons of light, in the guilty periods of those defiled by iniquities, not for an everlasting destruction, but for the era of the humiliation of sin. Rejoice, righteous ones, in the wonderful God. Now, the Songs of the Sage is more or less a sectarian scroll 
a scroll of Sectarian writings found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's another fragment from Songs of the Sage, from the scroll designated 42511, from fragment 35, and it says, I spread the fear of God in the ages of my generations to exalt the name and to terrify with his power all spirits of the bastards to subjugate them by his fear, not for all eternal times, but for the time of their dominion. From the Dead Sea Scroll Study Edition, from the scroll designated 42204, the Enoch literature, which seems to be what Songs of the Sage is based upon. Exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers, and that seems to have been speaking prophetically. That watchers is a word used of certain angels is evident from the biblical book of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 13, 17, and 23, where it is without a doubt used of angels. Christ said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 10, verses 18 through 20, I beheld Satan falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given to you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, and no one shall by any means do you justice. But in this you must not rejoice, that spirits are subject to you. But those spirits were not necessarily in heaven. Rather, rejoice that your names are inscribed in heavens. Here in the New Testament, there is a direct connection between these demon spirits and these allegorical serpents and scorpions, which represent people in our modern world. And... That Satan, whose fall from heaven is depicted in chapter 12 of the Revelation, who is also that old serpent whom we know from Genesis chapter 3. Apparently, the demon spirits were not comfortable being cast out of the man, where they would evidently be out of touch with the physical world. Such is evident in the words of Christ in that parable given in Luke chapter 11, verse 24, where the King James Version reads, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through the dry places, seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return unto my house whence I came out. Now there is other literature in the Enoch Scrolls, which I have cited often here in my presentations and in papers at Christogenia, such as the problem with Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, which demonstrate that this, the wicked spirits, the evil spirits, come from the spirits of bastards, the spirits of those bastards which were created during race-mixing episodes, such as that explained in Genesis chapter 6. There is no doubt the possibility, and we see it clearly in Scripture, that evil or wicked spirits inhabit an invisible realm here on earth. But that does not put 
Satan in heaven. Satan is not in heaven. In fact, Satan walks all around us. Next week, when I present Luke chapter 9, we will talk about the difference between demons and devils. Luke chapter 8, verse 34. And seeing what happened, the swineherds fled and announced it in the city and in the fields. The Greek word for swineherds is literally only feeders. And seeing what happened, the feeders fled. Verse 35. Then they came out to see what happened. And they came to Yahshua and found the man from whom he had expelled the demons. Sitting at the feet of Yahshua, dressed and of sound mind, and they feared. And those seeing it reported to them how he had saved him being possessed by demons. And the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them because they were stricken with great fear. Then he, boarding into a vessel, returned. But the man from whom the demons were expelled had begged him to be with him. But he dismissed him, saying, Return to your house and describe what things Yahweh has done for you. And he went out through the whole city proclaiming what things Yahweh had done for him. There is nothing in Scripture or in history that we can ascertain about the race of these people at Gadara. Luke tells us in verse 26 here that this district was adjacent to Galilee. There were many settlements of Greeks, Romans, white Syrians, and Strabo, the geographer, tells us that the Syrians were indeed white, and possibly even some remnant Israelites in this area. An examination of the Old Testament reveals that there were children of Israel who did in fact escape the Assyrian captivity, who were not taken by the Assyrians, although they were nevertheless cut off from their relationship with God as they had adopted paganism long before even the time of the Assyrians. Christ did in fact want the man to announce his blessings to his kin. What is obvious here, however, is that these people would rather continue to suffer with the status quo than to see change come, even if it were for the better. They did not want Christ preaching in their land. They preferred the world. They preferred the world and their swine to the word of God. That, to me, is a very good portrait of most of our own race today. Most so-called Christians would never trade in their swine for any amount of the truth. Most so-called Christians would also never exchange their current level of comfort, no matter how miserable they truly are, for any truth which may make them feel less comfortable than their own current perceived condition. Verse 40, and upon the return of Yahshua, the crowd received him, for they were all expecting him. And behold, there came a man with the name Yahiris, and he was a leader of the assembly hall. And falling by the feet of Yahshua, he invited him to come to his house, because his best-loved daughter, 
the Greek word monogenes, about 12 years old, was in it, and she was about to die, and upon bringing him the crowd, constrained him. The name Yahiris is spelled in Greek, either I-A-E-I-R-O-S or I-A-I-R-O-S. The name appears often in the Septuagint. It appears in the Septuagint in the form Jair in the King James Version, I-A-I-R in the Greek of the Septuagint. If indeed this is the same name as Jair, this New Testament name, which Strong and Sayer in their lexicons maintain, Strong's Hebrew number 2971, where the name, the name's meaning is given as Enlightener, I must conjecture that this may not be related to the Old Testament name, but rather, if the spelling is correct, it may be a combination of the name Yah or Yahweh, the shortened form of Yahweh, which appears often in Hebrew names, and the Greek word Iris. And therefore, it may mean, in Greek, Yahweh is mighty. The following account of the woman with the flow of blood breaks into the account of Christ's going to heal the daughter of Jairus. Luke 8:43, and there was a woman with the flow of blood, literally with blood that flows, for 12 years, who had spent her entire livelihood with physicians, who was not able to be healed by anyone. The 3rd century papyrus P75 and the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Beze are all wanting the phrase which says, who had spent her entire livelihood with physicians. And the NA27, the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, marks it as doubtful. And perhaps that's appropriate. However, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Alexandrian Codexes and the Texas Receptus all have the phrase, as does the Codex Washingtonensis. So the, codex, the, the best codexes are divided on this phrase. Verse 44, who approaching behind him grabbed the hem of his garment, and immediately the flow of her blood had stopped. And Yahshua said, who is grabbing? Then, all denying, Peter said, Master, the crowd constrains and presses upon you. Then Yahshua said, Someone has grabbed me, for I know that power has gone out from me. And the woman, seeing that she had not gone unnoticed, came trembling and falling before him because of the charge that she had grabbed him, announced before all of the people even how she was immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has preserved you. Go in peace. Preservation or salvation can refer at times to the body in this life as well as to the spirit in the life to come, depending upon the context of the passage where it is used. Calling the woman daughter, a woman whom he did not know personally, Yahshua discreetly asserts himself to be Yahweh our Father. Once the woman is healed, the narrative returns to the healing of the daughter of Yahiris. Verse 49, while he was speaking, 
someone comes by the assembly hall leader saying that your daughter has died. Trouble the teacher no longer. But hearing it, Yahshua replied to him, Fear not. Only have faith, and she shall be preserved. Once again, we see preservation or salvation at times refers to preservation of the body in this life. And coming into the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and Jacob, and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning her. And he said, Do not weep, for she has not died, but is sleeping. And they were deriding him, knowing that she had died. Evidently, they were mourning the girl by holding what we may call a wake. In the account, as it was related by Matthew, Yahshua's initial words to the crowd were more pointed, where it is reported that he said, Withdraw, for the child has not died, but sleeps. Matthew also recorded the derision which the crowd offered him in return. Then grasping her hand, he cried aloud, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and immediately she stood up, and he commanded to give for her to eat. And her parents were astonished, and he instructed them to say nothing of what happened. Matthew chapter 11, verse 5. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. The resurrection of the dead before the passion of the Christ, before the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, which happened in Acts. The return of the Spirit to a girl who had never heard the gospel. All of this is further evidence that the traditional Baptist view of these things, which we have seen described here last Saturday, is wrong. For there is the spirit of man, which is imparted to our race, and which is in the image of God. And that spirit survives after the death of man, regardless of its relationship to the gospel when the person dies. And then... There is the Spirit of God himself. As Paul says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We, not the fallen angels who were allegedly in heaven. That's ridiculous. We are the children of God. We, meaning the children of Adam. We are the children of God. Not some satanic rebel angels who are wrongly supposed by Baptists and dualists alike to be in heaven unto this day. That's ridiculous. We are the children of God. The children of Adam, the children of Israel are the children of God. And our spirits are eternal. And the spirit of this girl returned to her, even though she had never before heard the gospel. Think about it. Reconcile the entire Bible. Reconcile all of the scripture. You'll have a much better time with it. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. Good night. I will be here next Friday with Luke chapter 9. Tomorrow night, Saturday.
Prosenk, my friend Mike Delaney, and Severus Niffelson, I should say my friends. They will be here filling in for me tomorrow night. I'm taking the night off. Praise Yahweh. Good night.